The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. Thanks for hanging around this half hour. We've got more calls for you from some of our favorite shows. You'll be hearing questions and topics you might have missed. Remember, if you need help, call us Monday at Edelman Financial Engines or visit us at rickedelman.com, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Let's get right back to your questions. To Chicagoland, Fran is with us on the program. How are you, Fran? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? Doing terrific. Thanks so much for calling. How can I help you today? Um, I would like my financial advisor to take some profits. I don't mean get out. I mean sell a little bit of the really big gainers now while the market is so high. And this money could be then put towards future purchases when the market is lower. But they don't do that. And I want to know if you believe in that for your clients. We do. We do that routinely. We do it all the time for our clients. It's called rebalancing. So let me explain to you how that works and and why it is a prudent investment management approach. And we believe one of the most vital services that we provide to our clients. Because you're right, Fran, we have seen an incredible increase in the stock market over the past nine months uh, with the S&P, the Dow, the NASDAQ all up 60, 70, 80, 90 percent in value. And it's reasonable to say, my goodness gracious, can the markets sustain this growth rate? And if they can't sustain it, will they either go stagnant or even worse, will they fall in value uh, if everybody suddenly wakes up and decides that the prices are too high and don't deserve to be that high? So it's reasonable to take the attitude that you want to do that. And that's what rebalancing is all about. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Let's say I'm going to make this example really simple to easy to follow. Uh, Let's say you have two investments and you put half of your money into each. So your portfolio is 50-50. And one of them does really well. It rises in value and the 50 has now become 70. So instead of a 50-50 portfolio, you have a portfolio that's 70-30. Well, you might say, well, shouldn't I take some of those profits off the table? Our attitude is yes, absolutely. So let's sell the 70 back down to 50. Let's take those profits off the table and use that money to buy the other one and bring that back up to 50, back to our original 50-50 model. So you sell some of the 70, you buy some of the 30. By doing this, you're selling the asset that has overperformed and you're buying the asset that has underperformed. So you're selling high, buying low. Let me reverse that. Buy low, sell high. Isn't that the trick to making money in the market? So rebalancing is a very effective strategy. If you don't rebalance, if you simply let the profits run, which it sounds like your advisor is talking about doing, your 50-50 becomes 60-40, and then 70-30, and then 80-20, and then 90-10. And all of a sudden, you have all of your money in one investment just in time for a market crash to wipe you out. And that is just too dangerous. So yes, I think you're being prudent. It does make sense 
to do this. You could even take it a step further if you wanted by saying, I don't merely want to rebalance. I don't merely want to take a 70-30 and bring it back to 50-50. What I want to do is literally take some of that money off the table. Don't reinvest it in the other investment. Move it to the side. Move it to cash. Leave it super safe. And then slowly, through dollar cost averaging, dribble it back in. 10% a month over the next 10 months, or 5% a month over the next 20 months, or 25% a month over the next four months. You decide the, the pattern. It doesn't matter. Just make sure whatever you decide, you do it consistently. And this way, you'll smooth out the volatility of the next several months so that if the market continues to rise, your investments will continue to rise. But if the market falls, you'll get the average price of the securities during your dollar cost averaging period. And so that could be a way to help you reduce your concern of suffering losses while continuing to participate in the financial markets. So between rebalancing and dollar cost averaging, you can definitely execute your strategy. And I'm a little surprised to hear that your advisor isn't willing to do this or doesn't do it automatically for you the way that we do for our clients. Me too. <laughs> well, yes. Maybe you need I a different need, I need advisor. I to investigate this much further. Yeah, so you maybe need to shop around for a different financial advisor. Definitely, definitely. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you, Fran. Thank you. This has been, you know, I thought I was crazy. They made me feel like I was, oh, the market always comes back when it goes down. That's great, but why should I lose this, you know? So thank you. You've, you've given me a little courage here. I'm going to investigate well, further and very possibly change you. Well, you're very welcome. We have an office in Glenview, not very far from you, so we're happy to help if you would like us to. Okay. Um, thank you. I will be in touch. All right. That was Fran in Chicago here on the Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK is our phone number online at rickedelman.com. Got a question for me? Record your voice on your smartphone. Send me the audio file to askrick at rickedelman.com. That's what Rich did. He's in Lynchfield, Massachusetts. Listen in. Hi, Rick. This is Rich from Linfield, Mass. My question has to do with the doomsayers telling me to put all of my money in gold because with all of the stimulus packages being passed, driving the national debt up beyond where any reasonable person would think it would be reasonable, the value of the dollar burdened under all this debt has to decline. And when it does, gold will be the only safe haven. I would like your opinion on what you think these trillions of dollars in debt are going to do to our investments in the next 10 years, and if you agree at all with uh, having some fraction, at least in gold. Well, Rich, there's a whole set of premises within the question that are embedded there, and it takes a leap of faith to go from the premise to the conclusion. We have to assume that the premise is correct, that the debt is going to create an environment of massive inflation in the country that is going to devalue the dollar and that the price of gold will therefore rise. So we've got four premises that all of which have to prove true. And we don't really have a timetable. You suggested a 10-year period, but I'm not sure that the doomsayers you're talking about are suggesting 10 years. Are they talking about a month, six months where this is going to happen? Or is it in fact going to be 10 years from now? And if it's 10 years from now, why are we worrying about it today? Shouldn't we be worrying about that in 2029 instead? So it's hard for me to swallow the entire conjecture here that they're putting forth. 
I will say that, yes, the federal debt is huge, never been bigger, made worse by COVID. It's going to get worse yet as President Biden issues more stimulus in conjunction with Congress in an effort to get out of the economic problems we've got. And the virus isn't still yet contained. So this problem is yet with us and going to be for some time. And therefore, for all those reasons, it's likely that the debt's going to get worse. And as the federal government tries to deal with that, both in Congress with fiscal policy and the Fed with monetary policy, uh, yeah, we're likely going to see increased inflation over time, increased interest rates, increased tax rates. What will all that mean for the economy? Well, if the economy continues to grow, it's not going to be a problem. You literally can grow your way out of the problem from increased GDP. So maybe that doomsday scenario isn't going to prove to be true. And if it does prove to be true, massive inflation severely devalues the U.S. dollar. The question becomes, what happens to all the other currencies around the world? If they are similarly getting devalued, well, then it's not going to be a big deal on a relative scale. We'll all be in the same boat operating similarly as we were in 2020 with pretty much every country around the world having a declining economy, all but China, that is. So, It's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. And even if those scenarios occur, who's to say that necessarily it'll be gold that is the asset that holds value and rises in value? Some people argue that it's Bitcoin. They're referring to it as digital gold. And maybe that'll be the asset that rises in value. Maybe it'll be oil as everybody desperately turns to energy resources. Uh, So it's hard to say what will be the asset that is the savior, so to speak. Keep in mind that if you buy gold, the question becomes, well, how are you going to buy the gold? Are you going to buy the bullion directly? Uh, Are you going to get a gold bar or buy coins or wafers and bury them in your backyard waiting for the day when you need to turn to them? Uh, Or are you going to buy shares of gold mining stocks? You're going to go buy a gold ETF or or a gold mutual fund. Well, if it's a security, I'm not sure how that's going to really help because it's a security. How is that going to help you buy bread if you're hungry? If you use the gold coins, well, if a given gold coin is worth thousands of dollars, how are you going to exchange that for a loaf of bread? So I'm not even sure that it's necessarily going to provide the solution that you are ultimately seeking. Uh, In other words, this is a mess, and we're all in the mess together. And that is why the best answer remains the answer we've given forever, diversification. So in short, yes, you should own gold. No, not because you think it is the savior to all of the other problems, but because diversification calls for you owning a wide variety of asset classes that have negative correlations to each other or which are non-correlated so that if one asset zigs, the other asset zags. Uh, And this way you don't have all of your assets going down all at one time, all for the same reason. So yes, it makes sense to own gold and precious metals, just as it makes sense to own commodities and minerals, as well as agriculture and timber, Uh, as well as exponential technologies and stocks and bonds and government securities and real estate, et cetera, on a global basis. It makes sense to broadly diversify 12 eggs and 12 baskets so that you reduce your overall risks in the marketplace. Gold, because of the nature of its circumstances, relatively illiquid, doesn't pay dividends, um, has no particular abundant use cases, you shouldn't have much of it. 3% of assets, maybe, uh, give or take. I mean, I wouldn't put the bulk of my money into it, uh, but having an exposure to it as part of a diversified portfolio? Sure, knock yourself out. And probably I would say the best advice, not aside, you know, setting aside gold itself, I would probably stop listening to the doomsayers. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. You can do what Rich did. Send me your audio question to askrick at rickedelman.com. 
with the publisher of the newsletter Inside Personal Finance. Coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. Uh, my colleagues and I, some of us were chatting the other day about the fact that we refer to ourselves here at Edelman Financial Engines as independent registered investment advisory firm. And it got us thinking, do people know what we mean when we use the word independent? You know, it's interesting. What, what comes to you when I say that? And I think that people often misconstrue what it means. So let me elaborate for you. There are two kinds of advisors uh, in this industry. Those who work for a firm that manufactures products and those who don't. You know, if you work for a big brokerage firm or mutual fund company, you're often going to be compelled, ordered by some of these firms to sell the products they manufacture, the mutual funds, annuities, or other investments. We're an independent firm. We don't manufacture products. We have available to us the full array of investment opportunity that's available in the marketplace. We sort through them all, filter them all, evaluate them all to determine which of the ones we believe are in the best interest of our clients. That's the difference of being an independent advisory firm. I'm Rick Edelman, welcoming Vince onto the program from Gainesville, Virginia. How are you, Vince? Hi, Rick, and, and thank you very much. Um, my question is in regards to my thrift savings plan and the federal income tax rate. Mm -hmm. I retired in 2015, and since then, I have not invested any additional money in the thrift savings plan, yet it has increased in value considerably from gains in the stock market, uh, the mm -hmm. S&P. So if I withdraw that money, why would it be taxed as ordinary income rather than as capital gains? Because the money that is in that account is money that came from your compensation, your salary as an employee, which you didn't pay income taxes on. And therefore, when you withdraw the money in retirement, that's when you pay the income tax. You know, the money went in avoiding income tax. So it's going to come out subject to income tax. Simple as that. Oh, I see. Even though I... Uh, since 2015, I haven't put any money in the TSP. It's all stuck in the uh, in the stock market all that time. Well, a lot of the money in that account, I would be willing to venture that probably most of the money in that account is by virtue of the growth in value, not the actual contributions you made. If you look at the money you contributed from your paycheck over the years as a federal employee, the amount of money you put in from payroll deduction is less than half of the current balance of the account most of the money in that account is growth. And you could argue, well, since it's growth, shouldn't that be treated as capital gains tax? Well, the Congress's attitude is the growth is all simply, an ex it's like deferred compensation. You could have taken the income in your paycheck, paid income taxes on it, and invested what was left into the stock market where the profits would all be capital gains. But that's not what you did. You took income, deferred the income tax, and now it's time to pay the income tax. Okay. Well, I appreciate that, Rick, and, uh, and I enjoy speaking with you today. Well, I'm glad I was able to answer that question for you, Vince. I know it wasn't the answer you wanted to hear. Maybe I'll do better with Joe. Heading off to Hailthorpe, Maryland. Welcome to the program, Joe. How are you? Good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much, and I uh, hope you're doing well as well. How can I help you today? 
I just got a question. I, uh, my retirement age is 66 in two months, and for the last year, I've been trying to find out from Social Security if I retire early, in other words, start taking Social Security, but continuing working. Um, I've been trying to find out the penalty and trying to find out if it's better or smarter or financially better to wait till I turn to 66 in two months and then take the retirement and then continue working. That's, that's probably it in a nutshell. Got it. Well, yes, you're right. You should wait until your full retirement age, which for you, as you said, is 66 years and two months. But here's the bigger, broader question. Why do you want to take the money right now? Do you need the income that you would get from Social Security? Well, what I want to do is, yes, use the income from Social Security to pay off a, a mortgage, and then uh, I plan on moving. And I just want to move with no real big bills anymore in my life at this age. Joe, when are you planning to move? September of 2022. So a year and a half from now, roughly. Yes. So I'm a little confused about your strategy. If you are planning to move in a year and a half, that means you're going to sell the house. Why do you want to bother paying down the mortgage on that house between now and then? What's the point? Well, the thought was that with uh, selling the house, moving and buying another house, that I would have more income that I hopefully will not uh, take on a mortgage at all. No, I don't like your logic. So let me let me explain why. Let's do some real numbers. What's the value of your house right now? Probably about 280000 And what's the mortgage balance? Like 20000 So you owe $20,000 on a house that's worth two eighty. dollars uh, That means, let's pretend you were to sell the house right now today. That means you would net $260,000, and we're going to ignore the real estate commission and the moving expenses and all that nonsense. Just in simple math. Okay. You would net two hundred and sixty grand. let us say that you have twenty grand in your hip pocket, and you use that money to pay off that mortgage, and now suddenly you don't have any loan at all. When you sell the house, you'll get the full two hundred and eighty grand, right? Yeah, yes, so far, Paulia. Yeah. But wait a minute. You had to come up with twenty grand to get rid of that mortgage, which means you already have the two hundred eighty. You'll net two sixty from the house plus the twenty grand in your hip pocket. There's the same two eighty. In other words, taking money from Social Security and giving it to the bank to reduce the mortgage balance, only to sell the house, means you're going to get back when you sell the house all the money you had given the bank to pay down the mortgage. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, right? Doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, right. It doesn't make sense at all. And I'll tell you how it hurts you. By taking the Social Security checks now at age 66 in two months, instead of waiting until you're age 67, at age 67, if you start the checks then, the checks will be as much as 8% higher. Because every year you wait to take your Social Security check, the amount you get goes up all the way to age 70. So the longer you wait to start your Social Security, the more you will get on a monthly basis, which is why I asked if you needed the money now. And it doesn't sound like you do. If you don't need the money, and how's your health? You have a, is your health in good shape? Not bad. Okay. So if your health is pretty good, meaning you don't have an adverse health condition that lowers your life expectancy, that means that over the course of your retirement, you will likely end up receiving more money in total from Social Security if you wait until age 70 to start collecting rather than if you start at age 66 in two months. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. And that's why I'm so glad that you called. And that's why I'm glad I called, too. I appreciate your time today. You're very welcome, Joe. I wish you the best and enjoy your house hunting. Thank you very much. You take care now. You too. That was Joe in Hailthorpe, Maryland, here on The Rick Edelman Show. I'd like to bring you some of the latest advances in the field of exponential technologies. Researchers at the University of California, Davis, have figured out how to get solar panels to generate power at night. They use a technique called radiative cooling to generate 25% as much energy at night as they do in sunlight. Meanwhile, a company has developed a charger that can charge an iPhone in eight minutes. That's pretty awesome. And Swedish researchers at the Chalmers University of Technology have identified a molecule that can trap and store solar energy for decades, releasing the energy on demand. Meanwhile, in Australia, the University of the Sunshine Coast says they've got a three-story water battery that cuts the university's energy usage by 40%. That's just a small taste of the innovative technologies that we're going to soon see in the marketplace. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, online at ricedelman.com. Number one bestseller, Rescue Your Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. Head off to Dallas. Mason is with us on the air. Welcome to the program, Mason. How can I help you? Hey, Rick. I am a 31-year-old single guy uh, with no kids and no debt. I currently max out my 401k, my Roth IRA, my HSA, and my ESPP. So my question is, since I'm maxing out these accounts, where do I go next if I want to continue to invest more? And what should I be doing with the ESPP shares as they become available to me each quarter? Well, I think what we need to do is take a step back and develop a long-term strategy. It's very easy and very common, in fact, for people to engage in what we call compartmentalization. That's an actually a behavioral finance mistake that a lot of people make, where instead of making one very big decision that is comprehensive for all of our personal finances, we make a series of very small, short, individual decisions. And it's easy to understand why we do that. Money is pretty complicated, and it's so much easier to do it one step at a time. You know that old adage, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So let's deal with every issue one step at a time. As I have money to invest, how should I invest it? And I've got an issue here with my taxes. How do I resolve it? And I'm looking to get a credit card. Which one should I choose? And so on. And we make a series of individual decisions. But the result is, in the world of personal finance, a series of individual decisions could add up, although each little decision is a good one, they add up to one big bad one. I'll give you an illustration where someone says, I'm saving to buy a house by putting money in my bank, but I also have five grand in credit card debt. Well, two individual decisions that combined constitute one big bad one. So we want to avoid that problem. So the best way to do that, Mason, is I'm going to ask you to take the issues you just asked me, which are very important and very good issues. I'm going to set them aside for the moment. I want to take a step back and ask a bigger question. What is it you're trying to accomplish? What's the goal? And I'm willing to bet you're not even going to be able to answer that question very effectively because you probably haven't given it much thought, have you? Well, I know I 
not looking to buy a house, but I would like to retire sooner. Wait, what do you mean by sooner? So I, I would like to retire early, but I don't have a target year for that. All right, so here's the key. It's wonderful that you have an attitude that you would like to retire early, but a goal is not a goal until you set a date on it. Otherwise, it's too vague. I don't know exactly what, what target I'm trying to hit. So you need to, and you're not going to be able to do it right now, and I'm not going to ask you to because that's not fair, but I want you to think about it. Do you want to retire when you say early? Does that mean age 60? Or does that mean age 50? Or does that mean age 45? You tell me. And think about other aspects of your life. Is there a marriage or partner in your future or children in your future? Do you one day want to buy a house? And when might any of those things occur? What kind of housing do you have in mind? Is it an apartment? Is it a condo? Is it a single family home? I mean, there are millions of people in this country who never buy a house. Think of everybody in urban areas. In New York City, they don't own homes. They rent apartments. Mayor Ed Koch was famous for never owning a home. Highly successful people never own real estate. So I'm not saying you have to own a home as part of your goals. I'm simply saying describe your lifestyle. What is it you want it to be? Once you can articulate the kinds of goals you have, we can then help you determine how realistic they are. What will it take to achieve them? How much money are you going to need to save? And where are you going to save that money? That will tell us the answers to the questions you did ask. What should you do with the money you have in savings? How do you handle the SCPP? And so on. Does that make sense? It does. Would it be a safe bet to say for the ESPP shares that I should do with that money is to keep them uh, on that one specific stock? Would that be the riskiest and maybe not smartest thing to do? Well, I want to make sure everybody understands what we're talking about with the ESPP. We're talking about an employee stock purchase plan. And when you are buying stock of the employer you're dealing with, yes, it's risky. And I say that without even knowing the company you work for. Why is it risky? Because you're investing your money the very same place you're investing your time. You spend eight hours a day working for that employer in exchange for a paycheck. If you lose your job, say the company goes broke, think of Enron 20 years ago. If you go broke, uh, if the company goes broke, you not only lose the stock in the company, you also lose your paycheck. So I always joke that if you work for Coke, buy shares of Pepsi. If you work for Pepsi, buy shares of Coke. Because you simply don't want to put your money where your time is, and vice versa. On the other hand, clearly, working for the company, you know more about it than you do any other company. And that gives you some level of ability to make informed investment decisions. But I think most workers have an overblown sense of their innate knowledge of what's happening in the company. Just because you work there doesn't really mean you know what's truly going on. I mean, does the, the person who's wearing a, a, a Mickey Mouse costume at Disney World really know what, what is happening in the boardroom at Disney? So I think diversification always wins in terms of reducing our risks and getting us the kinds of returns that are good enough to achieve the goals we have. So I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in your employee stock purchase plan. I'm simply saying don't. let's make sure you don't put too much of your money there relative to other investment strategies. Excellent. That's helpful. I appreciate it. Well, Mason, I'm glad I was able to be of value. What I've described is the financial planning process where we help you figure out what is it you want to accomplish in life, or as I jokingly say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And once we have a sense of that, recognizing your goals and aspirations will change over time. That's perfectly natural. We just revise the plan over time to keep pace with it. Once we go through the planning process, we'll be able to more effectively 
answer the specific tangible questions of what do I do with this account? What do I do with that account? How do I manage the money over here? What do I do with that? And we eliminate the compartmentalization and you'll end up with a comprehensive approach that is going to be much more likely to help you accomplish all of your goals. So Mason, we're happy to help you do this. Any good, talented financial planner can do this for you as well. We have offices in Dallas, not far from you. There's a lot of good financial planning talent in and around Dallas, and you won't have any trouble getting the advice you need. Thank you so much, Rick. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. That was Mason in Dallas, Texas, here on the Rick Edelman Show. Off to Suwannee, Georgia. Manny's with us. Welcome to the show, Manny. How are you doing? Hi, Rick. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. What can I do today for you? So uh, my question is regarding the 457 plan. This question came up in conversation with my brother. Uh, he and mm -hmm. I are retired New York City police officers, and uh, both of us participated in the 457 plan. We both uh, had our taxes prepared by uh, a person who also gave investment advice. And uh -huh. this person had uh, sent a text message to my brother. I would imagine he sent it to others also, but uh, it said uh, New York City could be headed for bankruptcy if they don't get a huge federal bailout. The faster you move your 457 out of, I guess, the plan and into this agency that he works for, you will worry less. So my question is basically, is that true? Is uh, 457 plans in danger of being reduced or being affected in any way by bankruptcy court rulings? My suspicion is... No, you're correct, Manny. No, uh, you should fire this person. Uh, he is misleading. He is acting unethically, uh, and he is clearly not serving your best interest. He is using a, a ridiculous scare tactic to trick you into moving your money from the retirement plan over to his firm because he's not earning any compensation on the money in that 457. But if you move the money to him, he will earn compensation, commissions or fees or both. Uh, and he's being very devious and deceptive and misleading. Uh, and he's flat out completely dead wrong factually. Um, so you should fire him uh, on the spot. Um, because I don't know if you could trust anything he says uh, about any subject based on this mere text that he sent out. You might even want to consider sending a copy of that text to state and federal regulators because they would love to see it. You're not allowed to engage in advertising the way that he's done it. Uh, the amount of rules this guy's broken is just blows me away. And he has scared you and your brother needlessly. So let me explain the facts of the situation. A 457 plan is a retirement plan used by municipal workers. Um, it's similar to a 401k, uh, which is uh, for companies, and a 403b for nonprofits and hospitals and schools, and the thrift savings plan for federal employees. They're all pretty much the same. The whole point of these accounts is that the money in the accounts is yours. It belongs to you. It is segregated from the employer. So whether your employer is the federal government, a state government, a municipal government, a private company, a public company, a nonprofit organization, whoever that employer is, doesn't matter. The money is segregated away from the company. Even if that company goes broke, your money will remain unaffected. It will remain untouched. It is not subject to creditors. A court is never going to grab hold of it. No problem, no concern of any sort. And besides, governments can't go bankrupt. So 
New York is facing all kinds of financial troubles as a result of the virus. We know this. This is true for cities and states all across this country. Uh, they're going to figure it out because they have no choice but to figure it out. They have always figured it out in the past. They're going to figure it out in the future, whether that means reducing social services, reducing their budget and their spending, or increasing taxes, or more likely a combination of the above. They're going to figure it out. Getting other revenue sources from the federal government or what have you, their problem, not yours. Your 57 plan is fine. Now, whether that means you might not be able to improve it by moving it to an IRA where you have more variety of investment options and flexibility. That's a whole separate conversation. But doing it because you're fearful that New York City is going to go bankrupt, silly, nonsense, crazy. This guy's nuts. Stay away from him. You don't have to worry about it. And my final comment is thank you so much for your service in defending the citizens of New York throughout your career. Well, thank you for that acknowledgement, Rick. Uh, I'm a big fan. I've been listening to you for many years. Well, it's my honor to chat with you today, Manny. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. That was Manny in Georgia, formerly of New York City, here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at ricedelman.com. Let's go to the phones here on the Rick Edelman Show. Head off to Lake Ridge, Virginia. Steve is with us on the air. Welcome to the show, Steve. Uh, thank you, Rick. What's on your mind? Sure. I've got some questions on Social Security. Okay. Okay. First question is uh, the OASDI tax rate and the cap on earnings is adjusted periodically. What's the trigger process for doing this? Politics. Congress is trying always to minimize taxes and maximize benefits. I mean, that's how you get elected, right? You tell people you're not going to charge them much money, and then you tell them you're going to give them as much as they want. So Congress wants to collect as little as possible and to give away as much as possible because that's how you get reelected. And so it's a balancing act. We have made promises to retirees that you're going to receive a certain amount in benefit upon retirement. There are also similar benefits for those who have suffered disabilities and those who have suffered uh, the loss of a spouse. So there's a certain amount of benefit we're promising that costs a certain amount of money. Congress has to collect a certain amount in tax from workers to be able to pay those bills. So it's a juggling act between how much are we collecting in taxes versus how much are we paying out in benefits. And Congress adjusts the tax rate as well as the income limit that those taxes are applied to. And it's purely a political process. We'd like to believe that there's some math behind it that we're doing some calculations with actuaries and economists uh, and market analysts to try to make sure that the amount we're taxing and the level of incomes on which the taxes applied are correct. But at the end of the day, it's nothing but a political process. Okay, second question. The near-term challenge seems to be associated with an aging population and more money being paid out to retirees than collected from those still working. When does this situation peak, and does it look like it'll ever normalize? Well, you've got it half right. The uh, situation is not only caused by people living longer than ever, meaning we're paying out benefits to each individual for many more years than was originally projected back in 1935. We also have fewer workers who are paying into the system, who are being taxed. So it's a double whammy. 
we're collecting less revenue and we're paying out more. That's a really bad combination. When will that situation ever get better? It doesn't look like it ever will. When we look at longevity, which is continuing to rise, meaning people are continuing to live longer than ever, it's projected that by 2030, life expectancies will be 100 to 110. Coupled with the fact that the birth rate is declining, meaning we're producing fewer babies, and by producing fewer babies, you produce fewer workers, and with fewer workers, you're collecting less tax in the aggregate from all of them. So that normal situation we had in the past where you had a lot of workers paying into a system in order to pay retirees who didn't live very long, those days are gone and they're never coming back. Which means, Steve, that you can expect tax rates to rise even further. Not only will the rate rise, but the income limit on which the tax is assessed will also rise. Already in America, more Americans pay more in Social Security taxes than they pay in income taxes. And that situation is going to continue to grow. All righty. Well, my my third question was, uh, how much time would we gain by completely removing the cap on earnings tax? You're raising a point that a lot of folks make, that we cap the tax on Social Security at about $134,000 of income. Now, very few Americans earn that much in income which means most Americans are paying Social Security taxes on all of their income. But rich people, those who are earning 200 grand a year, 500 grand a year, millions of dollars a year, they're not paying Social Security taxes on all of that money. So some folks are saying the tax is actually rather regressive. If you're making 50 grand, you're paying Social Security tax on 100% of your income. But if you're making 270 grand, you're only paying tax on 50% of your income. And some people say that's simply not fair. Now, the reason that that situation exists is because the benefit you get in retirement has a ceiling to it. There's a maximum check that you get from Social Security. So the argument is it's not fair to charge taxes on a millionaire's entire income because they're not getting a benefit based on their full income. They're only getting a benefit based on a small portion of their income. Again, it's a political issue, not an economic issue. But to answer your question, you're right. If we were to tax everybody on all of their income, no matter how much their income was, yes, that would help in getting Social Security to generate more revenue, which is what it needs. And that is one of the possibilities that Congress is going to consider when it evaluates solutions to the Social Security crisis. All righty. Well, the, the fourth question is how much would the OASDI rate have to be raised both with and without removing the earnings cap to get us through the current situation? I haven't done the math, but I will tell you this. The elimination of the earnings cap in and of itself will not solve the crisis for the simple reason that there aren't enough Americans earning above the earnings cap that taxing them is going to solve the problem. So that might help the issue a little bit, but it's not really going to solve it. The real solution is to increase the tax rate or reduce the benefit or a combination of the two. And I believe what you'll discover is the third solution. Congress will, for political reasons, do both. They will increase taxes, and they will lower or delay benefits. 
because that's the only way to get anything done in Washington is to make everybody angry. <laughs> All righty. And, and my last question, uh, what would you think of some kind of a catch-up contribution for Social Security tax or for Social Security, basically applying any taxes taking on earnings above the cap into the Social Security formula to offset lower earnings years to allow those that pay extra taxes to increase their Social Security income long term? That sounds complicated. Social Security already takes into consideration your highest 35 years of earnings. So to take your high income today and count it toward an income you earned 20 or 30 years ago, when we have to take into consideration inflation, uh, it sounds like a cumbersome, complicated set of math that I think they could accomplish the same thing of revenue generation in a simpler way. All right. It just seems like those that pay in more to Social Security, more into taxes, should get more of an entitlement. So somebody works more than 35 years, say, you know, some people could work 50 years before they before they draw Social Security. It seems like that those extra 15 years or so should count in towards that. Seems like uh, those that, uh, you know, if you took the cap off of it, those those uh, earnings above that cap should go into it also. Well, so here are the two problems with what you've just said, Steve. First uh, is the fact that you're making the problem worse. If we're trying to make Social Security more affordable, the last thing we want to do is increase the benefit that people get. Because the more you increase the benefit, the more taxes you have to raise. So if you increase the benefit, you're really damaging the challenge. Second, what you're describing is eminently fair. But since when is fairness a criteria in Washington tax policy. It's a political process. Okay. Well, already, Rick, I, I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for calling, Steve. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me on the program today. If you need us, we're here for you. 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Or visit us online at rickedelman.com. See you next week.